Welcome to The Figure with me, Charlotte Lorimer. And me, Georgia Parkin. Today we are going to be talking about some quite current affairs-y things. What episode are we on? 62. We are on episode 62. Yes, we are. 62. And it is our January episode. Yes. So tell me about some of the things that you've been listening to, watching, reading in January that you would recommend. January. Um... Do you know what? We're recording this the day before the day before the end of January. And I'm so glad because it's felt like about <laughs> four months. But there has been some... There have... God, there have been some really fun moments of January. Lots of cosy nights in, saving money. Um, one of my best friends is getting married. So we've been doing some fun things around that. But I would say mainly what I've been watching, listening to... I've listened to a few audiobooks. Um one of them we're going to be talking about later on the other one is called pretending by holly Bourne, and i don't even know if i would recommend it i'm enjoying it and i'm getting attached to the character but it's so hectic that it's not very peaceful um no it's not it's not a peaceful book (laughs) so that's should we give a little pricey because it is an interesting book okay give a pricey give a pricey that that cliche it's very it's a page turner (laughs) It, it is true or uh, what's the audio equivalent of that oh you put An your audi- sleep t- you put your sleep timer on that, that, i've you done that with that. that before you go to sleep yeah i don't have the same issue as you of listening to stuff i can listen to anything before i go to bed and then i just drift off okay i definitely couldn't listen to pretending mm. before i go to bed um basically there is a the main character april has been having some difficulties in various different relationships it becomes clear why which is the big trigger warning of the book kind of as you listen to it or read it um which is to do with an assault and she is it a spoiler if i say what she does no it says it in the in the blurb but she basically it's like she has a personality disorder slash she comes up with a comes up with an alternate personality but you know what i, I will say the author really puts her finger on so many good dynamics uh, about how women feel this frustration with men uh, when it comes to dating. I don't know how she does it. She's like, yes, I'm just going to magically, my body is going to be perfect and hairless and I'm going to eat three burgers and, and still I'm, look And I'm going to wake up next to you and I'm going perfect. to be quote unquote makeupless. But yes. you don't know that I've just been to the bathroom to yes. put on a little bit of foundation and a bit of yes. lip gloss yes. so that you think I look all bright eyes yes. and bushy tail when I and it's basically she, she, she she's playing on all of those things that sort of is the quote unquote it, perfect woman and it's the misunderstanding of that and, and one of those things is she uses this alternate character to help cultivate that basically and actually I've been given that advice myself I think my mum has told me <laughs> that my mum has told me that before like when I've been really nervous going into the office or you know a job interview or maybe a date or you know you whatever be like put your become a character and try and anyway but this as you can imagine this goes very crazily crazily wrong wrong because she actually meets someone she likes it's a very good book club book i'd say yes because there were huge points of discussion on all sorts of different levels having sex after having experienced you know assaults in various ways and and the sensitivity around it just it's and you get attached to the character for sure Mm. um so yes i've been i've been listening to that i've also been listening to a lot of my old favorite podcasts so diary of ceo 
Um, in particular, the episode with Davina McCall was so moving. Um, the episode with Dr. Tim Spector about why calories don't matter. I think the work he's doing actually with Zoe, which is the app that he's made, is doing some really interesting work on gut health and mm. just basically why we all need to eat whole foods and processed foods are giving us all these sorts of problems. Um, I've actually got that episode downloaded and I was yes, going it's to very listen good. to it. There's also Richard Branson, Stephen Fry on there, um, Annie Mack, Louis Theroux. It's very good. Um, I'd also recommend The Therapy Crouch, um, which is Abby Clancy and Peter Crouch doing like couples therapy. It's basically like Candice and Casey. Casey Neistat did this in America like five years ago and it's basically the same, but English version and it's so good. Um, I also discovered a podcast called Ruthie's Table 4 and that is hosted by Ruthie Rogers who founded the River Cafe uh, which is a very famous restaurant in West London and she interviews, it's very rock and roll, she interviews lots of celebrity guests um, who she's friends with as well and it takes you through childhood and food and gathering around a table, some really good classical music in there as well very wholesome so i would recommend that sounds so lovely those i'm gonna love that podcast i I'm, think you will i'm so excited to listen to that i will have that on my drives my recommendations are i i feel like i'm the latest to the party on this but we haven't actually had a podcast recording in the normal format since i started listening to it the rest is politics which i recommended <laughs> months okay <laughs> yep <laughs> um i think i started listening to it in the whole liz trust fiasco i think this is where our sibling dynamic mildly comes out a little bit it's in these moments where i'm like but i told you about it i did tell you about the silence of the girls though, you did and i in went 2019. in one ear and out of the others yeah and i definitely have talked about pretending as well you have that's true um okay so that podcast is fantastic it's very accessible for something that discusses such complex political mm. issues mm -hmm. it's not just focused on britain although that obviously does take up lots of the discussion space naturally because that is what they both have lived and known they also talk about different political issues figures across the world i always feel like i come away from that feeling like i've learned a lot and questioned the way i've thought about something or my assumptions over something and it's very funny as well it's like light-hearted while being serious at the same time really recommend Indeed. that um i am reading dear dolly which is dolly alderton's collection of columns from the sunday times which are just organized into a couple of different themes and it's all of her agony aunt responses really moving really funny really just savvy and um, lovely to read it in a book format, actually. You can dip into it. Dip in and out, exactly. Um, the Women of Troy, which is the follow-on from The Silence of the Girls. And I'm reading that as well, actually. Mm. Where have you got to? Well, I'm not going to tell the, the, the listeners. <laughs> That's a blatant spoiler. Okay, fine. We'll talk about that afterwards <laughs> yes. then. Um, this is uh, the follow-on book from the silence of the girls as I, as I said which is a retelling of or, or not even a retelling but just a telling of mm. the trojan war from the perspective of the women prisoner of war camp people um that doesn't make sense <laughs> it is a perspective of female prisoners of war 
Yes. That's what it is. And we never really hear stories from that perspective in the brutally honest way that this is told. And it's very, very moving. And it primarily is from the perspective of Bryce's, who is the quote-unquote prize for Achilles. And so the Silence of the Girls focuses on the run-up to the fall of Troy. And the woman of Troy starts in the belly of the Trojan horse with Pyrrhus, who is the son of Achilles. And it's from his perspective. And it's some of the book is from his perspective. Most of it is still from Bryce's, who is pregnant with Achilles' child. Um, so these are all historical things that lots of us will be familiar with if you've read any Homer or you've watched lots of Greek myth films and TV shows or whatever. I mean, Definitely me. I've seen all of them. <laughs> are you joking? Yes. <laughs> I'm um, just imagining someone listening to this going, yes, I have seen all <laughs> of the Troy? Greek films. Troy, that's a really popular Troy film. Troy is, is popular. Basically, true. there's lots of... No, it's if you, follow, if you follow the story, you will know about the There's Iliad lots of recognisable names in there. The Iliad, yeah. Lots of recognisable things, that, but yeah. it's from a different perspective and it it humanises it and it also brutalises it because mm. it's made it human. Indeed. Not light-hearted reading, but um, a fantastic book and beautifully written. And my final recommendation, which is also quite dark and, again, incredible writing, is The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell, which is another historical fiction piece which is focused on the third daughter of Cosimo de' Medici who marries the Duke Alfonso of Ferrara. And she's only 14, I think, when she gets married. And she isn't married for very long because she dies very young. And you know that right from the beginning. So you have this sort of foreboding aspect, but you don't know quite what's going to happen. So it feels like you've got this kind of shadow or cloud. And it's like watching a storm actually coming closer and closer and closer. And it's written almost like a thriller but it's all historical in terms of the characters and, and and in terms of lots of the things that happened, which makes it all the more shocking. But that is a, another incredible book. All of her books are amazing. Maggie O'Farrell, if you're ever in need of a book, definitely go to the bookshop and get one by her. Our first figure for today is Vladimir Zelensky, president of Ukraine. And it feels very strange that everything in Ukraine has happened again since we've recorded a podcast um in our usual structure and i guess that means that we can look back over what has occurred and what his role has been within that i have hugely enjoyed learning about how he came to be president and going back over some of his speeches especially his new year's day speech which was so powerful and uh, I think I've been asking some friends what makes him an effective leader and I think the thing that's come up from several people is communication like very very effective communication and harnessing the the moment in terms of recognizing that the Ukrainians are there and brave and standing and then being that person to be standing with them what yes. are your thoughts on him being an effective leader? If I think back on leaders who have been most effective or I've felt who have really inspired me and motivated me, I think they are those who 
have empathy, show empathy, um, that are in there with you in some form. Mm. Um, they don't need to be obviously doing exactly the same job as you. Like that's the point of a leadership hierarchy. But you've got to feel like you're in it together. Mm. And I think when I was watching Zelensky from an outsider's perspective, that is exactly how I felt watching him in that bunker, especially in the first few days of the war, well, several days of the war, you know, and he was offered aid by the Americans to evacuate him and his family, and he just would not leave. And I think mixed in with the sentiment in Ukraine of everyone wanting to fight, you certainly are going to be far more motivated when you know that your president is standing firm and not budging yeah and, um, I and think that's leadership for me definitely you know, in, in it till the end yes shoulder to shoulder yes yes and i think the other thing that has strengthened that because it's in his words and his actions and it's in his form of communication in that mm. this whole selfie video message mm. not in a big sort of presidential suite not with big fancy cameras with the way that we communicate to each other and he's using that to communicate with the people that he's yes. leading and motivating. I was going to say communication, telling people what you're doing, why you're doing it and what you need them to do in a way that's empathetic and emotive and firm. I think that's... And doing it in a form that is... Yes, is accessible. Accessible, mm. yeah. And, and much more normal. And mm. I think that counts for a huge amount. Interestingly, as the war is progressed i think how zelensky has sort of carried on that leadership um th and they carried on those qualities you know how he's been dealing with russia other leaders of other countries and i was listening to an analysis today with um it's actually quite a very interesting podcast episode about how actually ukraine was far more prepared for the war than they let on originally and the reason they did that is because they didn't want the west to feel like they weren't going to send enough aid um but that's one of the reasons why ukraine hasn't fallen and it was to say to their credit that it's not just been western aid although that has been huge obviously and probably a majority of the reason but actually ukraine was was silently well prepared mm. and he knew that well, he will go down in history with you know, I think he'll be in statues and in scripture and in, you know, he will be an icon of uh, Ukraine, but also the Western world drawing a line under Putin's regime. It's been a big factor in that. Um, there's been, there have been so many different elements going on with Putin and we've talked about the Minsky Act before in this podcast. Do you want to just explain for anyone who isn't aware what that is? Yes, the Magnitsky human rights sanctions are a set of laws that were created, uh, inspired by a lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, who was a lawyer working with um, a man named Bill Browder, whom Putin's government stole a lot of money from, and essentially, I'm sort of summarising this, but essentially framed them for taking the money, if that makes sense. But actually, it was a frame of attack was forward, but it was actually the government who stole from them. And Sergei could prove that this was the case and had this evidence and was working tirelessly to do that. And then the government captured him, put him in 
prison and basically tortured him, killed him. That is where Alexei Navalny is right now. That is where Vladimir Karamurza is right now. Um, and their wives are two extremely strong women who are campaigning across the world. There are many others. Actually, two of Bill's books are incredible to read on this, mm. uh, Red Notice and Freezing Order. And it just takes you through just Bill's story, but it actually, what it does is opens up thousands of other stories mm. of, of Putin's regime. So this war is sort of, it's, it's, it's almost... I don't know. I guess it's a sort of physical one of one of the physical manifestations of the Western world going no, because up until this point, it's like they've been quite careful as to how they've sanctioned Putin, mm. um, and they haven't. Basically, they have mm. been sanctioning various oligarchs. And with the Maninsky Act, can you explain how what the impact of that is once it's in place and once yes. a country has put it in place? It is to it is to sanction officials who have been involved or have shown corruption with uh, huge human human rights consequences. So those who, say, were the team that uh, framed bills, lawyers of tax fraud, you know, those people have been sanctioned. It means their assets are frozen. It means that they get certain rights taken away from them. They can't. A lot of their property and money was tied up in London and New York in particular. So passing those uh, sanctions meant they couldn't access them anymore. Um, it basically means that people who've made money from corruption can't put it into other countries where this act is in place because mm. it will be frozen. Yeah. And interestingly with Zelensky, he, I suppose, hasn't had the most straightforward path to becoming a leader. Interestingly, everyone talks about him being a comedian, which I found odd because he's also a lawyer, which isn't every member of parliament a past no, so he's, he's like, that's a... quite normal but everyone kind of ran with this fact yeah maybe because it was more unusual and it Probably. made more of a headline and i guess it's more modern isn't it like po politicians nowadays mm. don't need to be just from the sort of standard politics background you can have lots of different experiences yeah becoming a politician. so he was born in 1978 to jewish parents in a russian-speaking part of southern ukraine he went on to get a law degree and he was very active in theatre when he was a student. And he went on to develop this show called Servant of the People, which aired in 2015 and was played to people in Ukraine and people in Russia. And so he was already a recognisable person in a completely different context, both mm. to Ukrainians and to Russians, which is what this um, amazing episode of The Daily focuses on. Have you listened to it? No. So good. I've forgotten how good The Daily is. And Daily every time I dive into it, I just go, I need to listen to this. It's very more. well produced, isn't it? It's so well produced. Mm. And the title of this episode is Why Zelensky Poses a Unique Threat to Putin. Brilliant. And it's all about this ability to speak to the Russian people as a separate entity to the people led by Putin. Does that make sense? So he's appealing to mm. the people of Russia and his power in doing that is because they already had been tuning into him as a person in a different capacity sure oh so they don't just think that he's sort of this sort of crazy opposition that's really loud and... they don't know him primarily yeah. as a politician that's not the first instance that oh, they came okay. across him they came across him and obviously the servant of the people was a political kind of satire show from what I yes understand. he used to take he used to 
play the role of a president he, he played a history teacher who was went viral on the internet oh, yes. for doing an anti-corruption speech yes that's true. and it's just so clever <laughs> it's obviously it hasn't been engineered like this but it can mm. when i was listening to that episode i just thought it's so very well done to connect all the dots and see why he is this unique person in terms of leading the country and saying things that led people in Russia to go out onto the streets and protest, which is a very dangerous thing to do. And yeah, the podcast is fantastic. I would really recommend listening to that to dive into his history and what that means for him as a leader. He's definitely one of my favourite leaders by mm. far of, 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 in our modern age of, of presidents and prime ministers I've seen. By far. And to finish on a lighter note, two fun facts about him. One of which is that he plans to travel to America to return the Oscar that was given to him by Sean Penn uh, when Ukraine wins the war. Why did Sean Penn give him an Oscar? I think because of how good his speeches are. Oh. And how, oh, and how nice. effective he is as a communicator. Great. Okay. I'm, I haven't. I think that's why. Anyway. Okay. And then the other one, which I just learnt, was that in the Ukrainian dub version of Paddington, Yes. Zelensky plays Paddington. Yes. And he was also on Dancing with Stars, which is like the... How far did he get? I have no idea. I might have to go back and watch we, his dances. We probably need to watch his dances. That's so funny. I think he'd be quite good at a tango. Yeah, because he's got a sort of tango vibe. Like, he's quite, <laughs> he's quite strict. I imagine he's a strict guy. But he's also really funny. He's got a really great sense yes, of humour as well. Maybe an Argentine tango. A little bit more cheeky. <laughs> The second figure is that the autobiography Spare by Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, sold 1.4 million copies across the UK, America and Canada in its first day of being released. It caused a lot of controversy when it was brought out. Causing, I think, causing, causing a lot of controversy. <laughs> there was also the Netflix documentary that prince harry and, and Meghan markle made um and that was released in december obviously the queen passed away in september so that sort of added a bit more of a spotlight to the situation and they came over to london and the and, documentary was made before she yes passed away. and and i and we haven't really heard from them since the oprah interview not really um i did actually enjoy Meghan's podcast um, she she's created a podcast called Archetypes and it's it's very good. It breaks down all of these archetypes of women. I've got a couple of episodes um, downloaded. It looks really good. Yeah, it's great. And do you know what? Just on that and Megan, just generally, because I feel like people are very divided whether they talk about ha when they talk about Harry and Megan. And then when I look on paper, there's nothing she's done that I don't actually like. She has, you know, been working her whole life she hasn't done anything that i personally think is offensive or wrong i think this the british tabloid press have made her out to be something that she's not but fine okay everyone has their opinion and ultimately i don't know because i don't know them personally i think going back to harry the reason that i was so interested in reading this autobiography is having been someone who has always been interested in the history of the royal family, I I don't know if having a monarchy is necessarily the best thing for our country. I, I Potentially it isn't, but I 
am sort of obsessed with <laughs> medieval history dates back to 1066 i mean honestly i could do my whole history a level again and i just loved hearing from his point of view did i enjoy some of the juicier bits and the more revealing bits yes because it's entertaining but also just shocking because a lot of what he's saying paints a very alternative reality to sort of what we've been hearing and what we've just believed but fundamentally harry's point in all of this is actually the tabloid press that went after his mother and sold fake stories about his mother are the ones that he blames ultimately he makes it quite clear actually that he doesn't blame the british people and doesn't actually blame his family i think the level of of issue he has with his family is the same as anyone else has with their family which are sometimes generational differences sometimes people don't like who you date cool we all have that actually but what he's really talking about is the media mm -hmm. false stories and then the institution and i kind of just wanted to hear it from him and i imagine a lot of people felt that way which is why it sold so many copies yeah i think that's what i wanted to ask about first is what is your opinion on the book having listened to it yeah and trying to separate that from what you've read which is a secondary or worse you know even further away oh you mean what of... the media have said about it because this is my issue with the whole discussion if you ask somebody what they think about harry lots of people will start talking about it in quite strong terms and then but not based on actually having read it or having watched the interview or whatever some people are deliberately not doing that and that's completely their choice because they don't want to kind of be part of all of the big mm. best-selling big viewership numbers but that's my question to you based on your listening of the book what are your thoughts yes i've noticed that a lot actually um so people will have read the headlines you know about several examples the taliban that he killed um his views on camilla i will say this now you can read it yourself that is not how it comes across in the book and no. actually not what he says in the book it's sort of an example in real time about how the press love to paint him out as being kind of awful or dramatic or whiny or what have you the capacity to sensationalize uh, it i yeah. it's, it's quite amazing because i read the some of the summaries of the sensational so to speak things in the book and now i'm listening to it and i'm only a quarter of the way through i don't listen to audiobooks quite as fast as you do <laughs> but i've got to parts so for example when he talks about losing his virginity and i had yes read. that's not true it's not true i'd read it? about it and i thought god that's quite a, a lot of a uh, personal mm. detail to put in there probably didn't need to go in there and then you read the full the full story no, and you fine. go oh, it's because he was scared that that's what the guy was going to bring up and then it was actually something completely different completely different and it is honestly about two lines yes it's 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 completely and you know what the reason i like the book and i actually got quite sad when i finished it because i got quite attached to his voice and the story I mean, that's quite common for me, to be fair. But what the, the bit that I related to it was a divorced family. Mm. Um, something that, I don't know, was brought up for me over Christmas and it's something that I still have to work on for myself all these years later. And the grief that with that brings, but also all the consequences of it, the step-parents, the pain, the drinking too much, the blocking feelings. Now, obviously, he had a huge grief as well. But, you know... 
I, I don't know. I just think it's. I think there was a lot of it that was sort of relatable, weirdly. And um, then there were all, there's also a lot of it that's massively unrelatable. And I've been thinking as he, as he keeps on referencing the acreage of various different stately homes that he goes to, and I'm thinking, are you doing that to to show how it's a completely different life that you live? Are you doing that because out of kind of you don't really understand that that is a completely alien thing to people and you're being a bit sort of disconnected from the readers or mm. or listeners or or is it just trying to paint a picture i don't know i mean he he worked with a ghostwriter on this who's an american novelist who's written several books before and ghostwrited others and um mm. it definitely there are certain things about the way it's written that you can tell it's like... A style, isn't there's it? There's a style that short feels Americans, Short chapters, like mm-hmm. really short, like sometimes four lines. But yeah, there's, there are things where you think, God, your life is so different from everybody else's. Mm. And then there are also other things where you think, oh, wow. Yes. That is... There is something, there is a connection there or a yes. sense of betrayal that you might have felt within siblings yes. or family or... And also just his, I, I liked how he painted his, the picture of him just feeling lonely um, when he had come back from war, didn't really have a full-time job or a proper job. His brother had gotten married, felt like a third wheel, was single for a long time, just come home, eat, sleep, get up, repeat. Mm. I don't know, there were some, some, sometimes he could get that mundane, like that, just that bit that we all experience across as well as yeah there's definitely a lot of it that is is very unrelatable but that sort of the entertainment aspect of the royal family that i think we enjoy i wonder shah what why do you feel like people are so offended i think that one of the criticisms is that he seems to have been campaigning for privacy for a long time or well, that's certainly how it's come across especially against his fights with various newspapers right rightly so yeah and then he has written a book that has reportedly had a 20 million dollar advance on it yeah that is revealing all the intimate private details of his life the thing there are two things one is that some of the proceeds are going to charity. I didn't actually know this until I started researching for the podcast, which is kind of interesting that that's not something that's been common knowledge. And the other thing is that I think he has the right to share and own his own story. And lots of the things that you might consider private, we actually already knew about because the press had covered it, all covered it wrongly, and he's trying to set the record straight. Yeah. So in terms of new information... There are obviously details of private conversations that have not gone into the public eye before. There is a lot there that was already there and mm. then he's he's telling it from his perspective. Mm. I think that another issue is this whole thing around permission because he has revealed lots of things where, I mean, if you were being a an extra careful and I guess extra compassionate writer you would go to ask the person for permission but didn't he cover that in one of his interviews and said that but his family have leaked stories to the press for mm-hmm. years about him yeah it's I, very tangled and I guess and messy, it's, where, it? it's whether we believe that there's a part of me that just 
goes, wow, if we really believe all of that, that they feed stories to the press, there's this symbiotic relationship. And there's this payoff as well. Payoff that happens. And so, you know, and then the, stu- you know, the stuff with Prince Andrew, and there's this argument that they were using Harry and Meghan to cover up that press cover. If that's true, then I think it's kind of so ridiculous and kind of awful that the British public don't really want to believe it or can't believe it. Because I just, I think, well, that would just be terrible. So then the alternative is not believing it. Mm. Um, And then also just seeing a very privileged person talk about their very privileged life when there's the cost of living crisis and we've had 500 prime ministers and (laughs) mortgages have gone up through the roof and we're just trying to get through the day. Yeah. In a lot of ways. And then I guess the other thing that people don't like, and it's also understandable, is this whole making money from private details in the past and going mm. over it and talking about it. And it's interesting because my instinct to the Netflix documentary originally was you've had your Oprah interview, you've made your money from that, you've got your podcast series, you've got this, you've got that. I understand that you need to make a living and that's important and you need to pay for your security which is very valid considering how many threats I imagine they get all the time uh but could you do it in a different way rather than like kind of hashing over the past then I actually watched the Netflix documentary and I thought oh no we did need that amount of context to really get what is going Mm. on Mm. and I really learned a lot from that series um the book has been similar i've also felt kind of a bit eye-rolly initially and now i'm actually listening to it and i'm going no this is this is really important and that we actually have his first person account of how he felt what he did that he clearly regrets what he did in terms of not being able to process how he was feeling as a kind of numb bereaved child like there's so many elements of it that Mm. i think no it does deserve space and also every human regardless of where they've been born or who what they've been born into i think has a right to tell their story but i also can see why people have issues with it um and that they feel like he's kind of complaining from a position of huge financial privilege um i know what do you think should happen now I think that he is trying to fight a a multi-headed monster in terms of trying to take on the press and the tabloids and and I I just don't think I don't know whether it's worth his energy mm. to do that. It's such a shame the breakdown of the relationship between the two brothers. But actually, the point that Harry makes in this book, and again, this is his side of the story, is that there was never this uh, angelic ride-or-die thing with William, actually. There's always been competition. They've always been each other's kind of like arch-nemesis. And that's actually really common with siblings, um, especially of the same gender. And yet he makes the point that the press have you know made a thing of their relationship to now tear it down um so it, it's it's interesting it's it's it was the best-selling autobiography of all time i think it, it's the oh. fastest selling non-fiction book of all time 
and and goes to show that our you know interest in the monarchy isn't any less than it was like clearly those are a lot of people that have mixed feelings on harry that have bought that book you know whereas the louder people will say that they don't want to read it or they don't want to mm. engage with it but clearly people are engaging with it yeah massively and i think what it comes down to is a question of what brené brown calls comparative suffering so are we going to have this kind of scale of who has had enough suffering with enough kind of particular context around it that they are allowed to tell their story oh i love that yeah because because then arguably if we use the privilege card with harry then none of us can complain because i have insanely privileged life in comparison to many many people in the world you know his privilege is on a different level but it also comes with complications and and comes with um things that are within our control are not within his control and that can be difficult Mm. and i'm not saying that he's had kind of a difficult life in the same way that lots of other people have had a difficult life but equally we've had things that we don't even have to think about that he has been completely impossible for him and Mm. it's a very isolating experience and i think that's really what it comes down to like do we have a hierarchy of that and and is that really at the root of why people have been so up in arms over everything that he's chosen to do and what he's the fight he's choosing to fight which ultimately is i think on behalf of his mother because he saw how it impacted her it obviously impacted his childhood hugely and i think as well like people have a a big empathy with diana Mm. i mean correct me if i'm wrong but i think they do she is was doused in privilege so but she still had all of her struggles with her mental health with her marriage with the affairs with and then you know obviously had all of the press intrusion but we sort of forget that a little bit now in hindsight Mm. you know i wonder if we'll look back on this situation with harry and Meghan differently in 25 years The third figure we're going to talk about is a portrait of Clara Westhoff by Paula Modison-Becker, which is currently on display as part of the Making Modernism exhibition at the Royal Academy in London. This exhibition goes on until the 12th of February, so if you are visiting London or live in London, I would really recommend that you go along before that closes. The exhibition includes work by seven women artists in and around Germany, in the early 1900s and around that time and it is one of those classic situations where I go along as an art history graduate and I know none of the names because (laughs) none of them were covered as part of my course (laughs) and I'm really glad that I now know the names especially Paula Meldison Becker who was born in Germany in 1876 Um, she then went to London Uh, for her first that was where she first had her drawing lessons when she was living with her aunt they uh, did not get on very well so that didn't last very long and then she persuaded her father who thought that she would need to go and train to become a governess that if she did that then she would be able to go to art college after that and so this is what happened she trained to be a governess and then she went to art college in Bremen 
and then she studied in Berlin and then she moved into a colony of artists where in 1898 where she met Clara Westhoff who was a sculptor and went on to marry the poet Rilke. What have you found most interesting about your research around Paula Modison Becker? Had you ever heard of her? No. I think that's you're you're so right and I and I it then begs the question how many historians, how many scientists, how many poets you know that we haven't ever heard about or we don't learn about and it's actually quite shocking in her case because it's shocking because she was in potentially a picasso was influenced by her Mm -hmm. um she definitely met goga in paris Mm -hmm. um and was and influenced by him Mm -hmm. and actually was the first female artists to have a museum dedicated to her in europe yeah in europe so why don't we know more about her she also is extremely feminist and explored this dynamic between mother and child through her sort of nudity and self-nude portraits but also in her later portraits of mother and infant but actually put off having a child until later because she wanted to focus on her career and Mm. going back and forth to Paris because her husband was in Germany um, and you know having a child wouldn't have have sort of worked Mm. very well for that and you know these are the conversations that we are having now in 2023 Mm -hmm. and she was doing that in 1905 um, when that was completely unheard of um, and had her first child at 31. And then sadly died. And then sadly died. Three yeah. weeks later from a yes. pulmonary embolism. Yes. Um, which was exactly the same as what happened to Otto's first wife, which is quite scary. Same age and the same thing of ch- dying related to childbirth. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think the reason that we chose this is because I really wanted to do another art-related episode and I'd been to that exhibition and just found it so enlightening. And... Mm that portrait in particular i found very sounds like such a kind of weird word to use because i don't use it very often but arresting (laughs) it's true you don't use that word (laughs) um (laughs) i was going around the exhibition and i saw it and i just stopped and looked and there's something very forceful about it and it's cropped in quite close and then there's this red i think it's a rose that's there there's something that feels kind of incredibly powerful and strong and big about it and at the same time there's a sort of femininity with the rose and and I found since I've looked at it more in terms of reading about it I now have discovered that they had a very close friendship and that makes a lot more sense now when I look at the portrait because there is a real intimacy between the artist and the sitter there and there's actually a poem by adrian rich written in the 70s which is suggesting that they were lovers and it's a beautiful long poem it's really um evocative and i would love to know more about their friendship there's actually a book called clara and paula but sadly it's in german and i don't speak or read german so i'm going to see if there is a translation of it but i don't think there is and that's what's sad about it that you don't have access to the information to even find out about these women and look at their work in the same way that we have that for lots of male artists. We need to have a 50-50 
art history. I think that there's also sometimes where you deep do... dive into hi- cult, you know, where we actually acknowledge this because it's crazy that we don't. I think that sometimes we need an overcorrection. And I think um, the book that I would recommend for that, and I'm recommending a book I haven't yet read, but I'm very excited to read it. It's called um, Art Without Men. And it's by Katie Hessel, who does the Great Women's Artists podcast, which is fantastic. Um, and the episode on Paula Monison Becker with an expert mm. called Diane, who's written a book on her um, and translated lots of the letters that were written between Paula and Otto when she was living in Paris and she'd left him to go to Paris and pursue mm. her career and really try to make it um, and live a completely creative life separate from domestic life and and can i also just say it's not it's not that we don't like men it's just like (laughs) it's just one of those things like with silence of the girls it's rarer to have those stories told through a female perspective Mm. right being a prisoner of war or being a well-known artist breaking barriers in the early 1900s we just don't really collectively tell those stories and so that's kind of why there needs to be an overcorrection. Mm. So, for example, with Paula Modison Becker, something there is that when she does her nudes, she is tapping into a huge history of nudes going way back to Greek sculptures of nude women. But what she does is she often includes a baby or a child in that, and then the maternal aspect comes in rather than the sexual aspect. Not that one is better than the other, but it's something that you don't see usually from male artists that are yes it's almost like as a female artist you can tell that story because well it's just a different it's a different way of it's a different way of representing it and it changes the the atmosphere of that painting Mm. and that is also something that should have space on our gallery walls Mm. and she was the first female artist to ever paint a self-nude portrait yeah, and one of the reasons that she did that is because life drawing, which is when you draw a nude model, was not something that was included or allowed for women artists um, training, if they were even allowed to train in the first place. Um, so yes, on that note, if you are visiting London, living in London, go along to Making Modernism. It's a bit of a strange title. I agree with Jonathan Jones, who writes for The Guardian on this, that it's not quite the right sort of summary for what that is because really it's a gosh you sound so adult when you say that (laughs) it's a it's a spotlight (laughs) on a few decades in a particular part of europe and all women's views and that's not what the exhibition title would obviously be i haven't come up with a better alternative but to say modernism is not quite the right thing i don't think and it's also a bit of a um an inaccessible term so go despite the title of the exhibition and go and look at especially Paula Modison Becker's work. Um, there were so many paintings that I ended up standing in front of for a very long time and admiring how solid her people feel and how kind of atmospheric it is and the use of colour and oh, I just absolutely loved it. There were so many paintings in that exhibition which I would happily have on my walls. And thank you again, Shah, for highlighting another female artist. It's important to do. 
thank you so much for listening everybody we will be back next month with another episode and more recommendations if you enjoyed this please leave a rating or a review it helps other people find us and send your recommendations yes you can reach us at the figure uh it's at figure podcast on instagram is the best way yes thank you bye bye